This is Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. A podcast. Red Pub Pod. From Red Hog Publications. Red Pub Pod. Welcome to Red Pub Pod, the best place to find out what's going on in Western North Carolina literature and beyond. I'm Richard Eller, and with me today is Tim Peeler, our editor at Red Hawk Publications, and Patty Thompson, our acquisitions editor. Thank you guys for being with us. Thank you. you But the real star of today is Les Brown, who's got a new book out called Iron Bridge Sunday. Les, let's start with how you became a writer in the first place. Oh, gosh. I spent most of my life, my adult life, teaching um, science. Uh, biology and geology and so forth. So uh, the writing that I did during my my career was actually not like literary writing at all because it has to be sterile and completely just, you know, you couldn't put any emotion or anything in that kind of writing. So later on in my career, I got kind of interested in stories that my family told me. And I, I started writing some of those down. And that... Uh, gave me kind of the seed to, to build on. And uh, I'll have to credit my wife in pushing me into that because I had uh, written some of these humorous kind of anecdote stories that my family told me. And she was riding down the road with me one day, and uh, I heard her over there laughing. She never laughed at any of my jokes that I've ever told in my <laughs> life. But I said, what is? what are you laughing at? She said... She was reading one of my stories, and she said, this is good. <laughs> and uh, she encouraged me to go to Heinemann Writers Workshop in Heinemann, Kentucky. It's a it's an ongoing annual writers workshop, and I went to that for about four years in a row, off and on beyond that even, and had some instructors up there that were just uh, amazing, people like Lee Smith and Ron Rash and uh, a bunch of those people like that. So that gave me the uh, um, kind of the push or the ambition to keep on working on these stories. And uh, so it evolved from there. And I've written this, uh, I've been writing then for about 30 or more years. And these stories in my current book uh, are a culmination of that. You know, something I mentioned to Tim a little earlier, you know, we are nearly at 150 books right now, Red Hawk Publications, but this is only our second short story collection. Wow. Our very first short story collection was the winner of Adventure Bound Books um, Chatbook Contest by Elizabeth DeVito. She did a short story collection called Animal Eyes and Other Stories, which was horror genre and it was she she won her prize she won a publication you were selected from your acquisitions editor uh, that happens to be me uh, based on the <laughs> on the merits of just simply being um incredible dialogue and story rich storytelling and the reason i'm bringing this up is there are different kinds of short stories how do you define or how do you label these short stories, because they're different from some of the other short stories that I'm accustomed to, let's say. Well, uh, I think they are different. Uh, In fact, the first part of the book is mostly uh, based on anecdotes that come from my family ancestry. And 
uh, stories my father told me, my uncles and cousins, and that sort of thing. And uh, the second section is just uh, developed from my father's generation and building on uh, the people I knew uh, during his his life, my uncles and aunts and those things. And then the, the next part, uh, of course, is my generation, the kids that I grew up with and cousins and uh, schoolmates and so forth. So uh, I don't know. The, the classic short story has these elements that are official. You know, you're supposed to follow a certain format. But I never really had studied those, and I didn't really follow them in uh, developing these stories exactly. But I think they turned out to be pretty much on target, uh, as far as I can tell. So, uh, I don't know, just, they come sort of natural to me, actually. I don't know whether that makes any sense or not, but uh, I don't know. I just, my dad was a great storyteller. So maybe there's some genetics there, I hope. <laughs> and, and it's as if to say that there's element of truth, there's element of, I'm sure, what you may have drawn out to fictionalize to, to make it a fuller story. But that probably is also what I'm trying to put my finger on. There's just an element of authenticity. And as I read these stories, I can hear stories that my mom would have told me about her great aunts and uncles, or mm-hmm. stories I hear my husband, who's 71, him telling me stories that his grandfather told him. So it, it does hearken and bring you back to another time. And yet the topics are still relevant today. It, it's, there's a lot in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's what I'm hoping people will get out of this, is uh, visiting the past and visiting some of the things that they may be familiar with. And also, uh, not only the humor of it, but the tragedy of it. So I, I hope this book goes through that spectrum of uh, uh, all the way from tragedy to, to almost slapstick humor. And uh, that's what I hear people say. <laughs> well, as you know, Les, I'm a huge fan of this book. And I think I gave you pep talks all the way through the editing process. Oh, Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm very interested in the process that you went through. Uh, did you write these chronologically the way that we see them in the book, or were these done piecemeal and then you puzzled them together? The only chronological thing about them <clears throat> is the first part, uh, that part of that the stories that my ancestors told me, my father and the, you know, the generation before him that go way on back to the ancestors. So that part was the first part that I wrote. The next part, both the second and third section of it, are piecemeal. I put those together from anecdotes that uh, uh, you know were told to me, or just uh, things that actually things that I did as a kid, or stories that I heard my family telling as a kid, and then I just built on those. So a lot of it uh, comes from. Uh, and as you say, an authenticity of uh, my family history. But uh, I don't know, the, the, the stories, though, evolve themselves. It's not uh, that I uh, followed any format or any chronological sequence. They just kind of evolved. You know, I'd have a thought or an idea from 
somewhere in the past and just uh, go with it. So the process, besides being kind of a, a practice in oral tradition, uh, I would say was also very organic. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, which is, I think, the reason that it comes off as authentically as, as you say. I think that's a good word, organic, because uh, they're, they're of real people and real things that uh, could happen. In some cases, they're based on authentic things that happen. They're all fictionalized. Everything in here is fictionalized, uh, except in the, the first part were the ancestral stories. Those stick to pretty, pretty much what they told me, but I put my spin on all of them. But the, the later ones are, you know, some of them are absolutely from my own uh, ether, <laughs> the ether out there. I don't know exactly what you'd call it, but just they came from nowhere. Uh, others are definitely based on events in my own life. For example, my father, who was unfortunately an alcoholic, plays a big role in a couple of these stories. And that... Uh, that was a hard part to write, but in a way cathartic for me. So. Yeah, I've I've had uh, this particular conversation with someone very recently, because most good writers that I know have had something like that in their life that was almost too much to bear, and it's one of the things that helped push them forward and maybe make them a little more ambitious than they might have been. Do you feel like? Dealing with your father's problems did that for you, oh, no because doubt. you you know the, where you got from North Cove is pretty remarkable. Right, no doubt that no doubt it influenced my writing. I've also got a couple of uh, uh, chat books of poetry that I've written, and a lot of those stories deal with my father's alcoholism. So yes, it did play a big role in it, and some of the other hardships that we heard heard in the family. Uh, are also in some of the stories. There's one story in there that uh, was published. Uh, oh, some, well, actually, it won a, won a uh, second uh, second prize in the Western North Carolina Writers Network about my uh, about a, an aunt who uh, uh, was beaten by her father at until she aborted, and that that story is probably the most. Uh, hurtful or tragic story in the whole book. Uh, but it's based on, you know, a family story that was told. And, of course, I put my own embellishment on it. And the, I have no idea how the things occurred, but I created those to fictionalize the story. Did you ever feel like whenever you were writing these that you were walking around looking at yourself Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, uh, the character that is a thread all the way through it is a kid by the name of Billy Fletcher. And he's my uh, doppelganger. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so he he's me. And, uh, and in some ways, he's like me. In other ways, he's uh, a little smarter, I guess, <laughs> in ways. But... Uh, he is uh, kind of my character, and all of the other kids in that last section are roughly based on people that I knew, you know, high school 
cohorts, cohorts of your generation. Yeah, yeah, but they are certainly not those people. <laughs> I, I want to go back just a little bit to that specific uh, short story you referenced, Bastard. I, I hope our listeners will understand this short story collection includes over 20 short stories, about 23, 24, of which nine have already been published over the course of of the many years, and about five of them have placed or won some type of recognition or an award. So, in, in essence, this is your short story collection, but it's also your the best of, for, for sure. Um, you are presenting us with some real gems here. And while Bastard was a little challenging to read at the same time, again, we put ourselves back in time, back in place, realizing that that could have been what happened, um, whether it did or didn't. But the fact is, you, you do represent some universal truths in this book within all of your short stories, including talking about religion, um, atheists, <laughs> um, race, uh, you know, everyday working, how it is to handle a farm with a lot of family and community. Uh, there's just a lot of things. Again, I picture a time 100, 120 years ago, but I also know that these are still universal truths that are still being tackled with today. Yeah. I didn't hold back. You know, mm-hmm. uh, these stories needed to be told and wanted to be told. Uh, they, were, they were in me and I had to get them out. Uh, even the ones that were very painful. But uh, some of them were just plain fun to get out. You know, uh, there are quite a number of those, particularly in the latter section where I'm with all my friends and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it, and the interesting thing, I often get a question about, uh, do you write the stories? Uh, how do you come up with a plot and so forth? And to me... The characters write their own story. They're, they uh, they do what um, they you know. I don't tell them where to go and what to do. They tell me what to write, and um, you know, just kind of let them go where they want to go. Uh, do you want to read us like a short section from one of the stories? Well, I could. I, I think our audience would like to hear that. This will be an in the middle of one of the stories. It's in the middle of the story called The Poker Game. You think it's a sin what we're doing out here every Saturday night, drinking, cussing, carry on like we do? Asked Vernon. Well, my grandma wouldn't even let us play old maids, but she'd uh, take a little sip of whiskey and honey, even uh, uh, even give us some when we had the croup. Sin, said Basil. I ain't right sure what that means. Everybody sins. If you go by the good book, don't know anybody, don't don't covet something. Might be as simple as somebody's big old mater plant or somebody's ass, you know, like the donkey, the one the Bible says about it. And I'll have to say that I have lusted a bit for some of them women in their underwear in the Sears Roebuck catalog. You've done more than lusted over that catalog in your outhouse, said Elmer. I just don't think it's a sin if anybody ain't hurting anybody else, said Coot. Don't know as I've hurt anybody in my life except maybe Toby Bates. When we was in the fourth grade, I punched him in the nose and because he called me a nasty hillbilly. It's still crooked if you look at him next time. 
I like to get out of the house and shoot the shit with you assholes more than anything else since they fired me from the furniture plant, I guess, said Elmer. You call that shack you live in a house, said Coot. You don't have nothing to show for it for your ears. You're one to talk, said Elmer. You live with your wife and mom and daddy in that old trailer on their land. At least I own my shack. Since Pearly died, I ain't beholden to nobody no more. I do as I please, and I please to be out here every warm Saturday night. With, uh, from spring till winter runs out, runs me out of the cold. My rheumatism has got so bad I can hardly get down to the creek to fish no more. So what else have I got to do? We're all doing something. We're being a bunch of happy-born losers. I can't fuss with that, said Ber- Vernon. We come out here every Saturday night and get skunk drunk. Ain't a mother's son of us going nowhere. We're all going to wind up right here where Elmer is, older than oxy oaks and poorer than straight dogs. But it ain't no sin in my book. You better watch out, old man. You're asking to be struck by lightning, said Coot. I've been baptized, dumped completely underwater, yonder down yonder at the Iron Bridge, when I was about 11 years old. If that preacher was telling the truth, I don't have to worry about going to hell because everybody at saved has been dunked. Why was you dunked, asked Basil. Wasn't you a Methodist? Still am. My daddy always said once a Methodist, always a Methodist. My great-grandpa was a circuit rider, come through here and made everybody feel guilty about making whiskey. But that don't seem right. They'd been making whiskey and good liquor ever since they came over here on the Mayflower. You're a dumbass cooter man, said Kurt Vernon. They didn't come on the Mayflower. Almost everybody up here is from Ireland, according to Daddy. They was poorer and sooner dogs. You never did tell us why you got dumped. The preacher let us decide whether to get sprinkled or dumped. Of course, a bunch of us young'uns like wanted to get dumped since it would be in the swimming hole down under the Iron Bridge. Well, at least we got purified all over, especially down on those parts that needed purifying most. Sprinkling don't get you on them, those, them parts, said Coot. Maybe we should all get dumped. Uh, sounds like uh, Coot's got a point, said Elmer. I didn't even get sprinkled. Nobody in my family's been has uh, been to church since the Mayflower, and all them Irishmen landed at Plymouth Rock and started Thanksgiving. Ain't that where they come to? I guess that's where them Plymouth, Plymouth Rock chickens come from. Been thinking a lot about that stuff since I'm as, about as old old enough to croak. I had a Plymouth once, lost my driver's license. Do we need a preacher to get dumped, said Basil. (laughs) That's some amazingly rich dialogue. And hearing you say it just brings it to life less. Um, I feel remiss if I don't say this. I'm hearing the ghost of Robert. Um, Please, folks, go out and go to our website and get this book. You'll want to read it. Um, It's called Ironbridge Sunday and Other Stories by Les Brown, and of course you can get it on our website, redhawkpublications.com. Now, my question would be, since you've written poetry too, is that a different process from the short story? You know, uh, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, the two are compatible because uh, there's 
in order to write a, a good short story, I think you have to have a poetic voice or uh, there's a rhythm or something that you have to get into. And I think the two really are uh, compatible. But uh, I didn't start writing poetry until very late, till well after I was retired. And uh, I just, that was something that just kind of spun out of uh, short story efforts. And I kind of ran into a, what you say, writer's block on my short stories. And the poetry gave me a direction to go for a while, but I'm kind of thinking I'm getting <laughs> back into that old groove. All right, let me ask you this. I've, I have been to a pottery show that Les did, and he's a, a master craftsman as well, also a photographer. Uh, he's a illustrator. An, illustrator. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, what What would you say about doing all of those different things? I mean, how do you balance well, all of that? Well, my pat answer is that I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I tell people that I, I'm not satisfied unless I'm creating something. You know, whether it'll last beyond me or not, uh, that's up to society to decide or my readers to decide, but it's just uh, fulfilling to make something and to create something, or whether it's verbal or physical. And a lot of the photos that Les has taken have become covers for his poetry books or maybe choices, and and in this particular short story collection, when he mentioned to Robert that he had illustrations to go inside, we were pretty quizzical and curious. And then when we saw his drawings, we're like, yeah, of course they're going in. So I think the readers will be surprised to see some interesting sketchings and drawings that accompany your stories. Well done. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate all of you and your support for me. I suppose that means there's more than one way to tell a story, right? With your images as well as your text. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, you can kind of see the story in your mind and the places in your mind. Uh, a lot of the places in this book are where I grew up. Uh, there's one a story called The Flats, and I can see this place right now. It's just like a swampy place in the creek where it widens out. It's where the kids went frog hunting, and uh, there's a story about that in there. And I can see the side of the mountain that we walked, hiked down in a scout hike. That what a great element. story that is. Just what? a great story. Uh, the, the hike. The hike. Yeah. yeah. My goodness. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, experience. And that one's based a lot on truth, except the dialogue and everything are totally fiction. Uh, but, you know, I literally can feel and see this place. My whole being is ingrained in that valley that I grew up in. I still call that home, even though I live in Statesville. And if you don't mind me asking, because I'm I'm not a North Carolina native, the locations that you use as names, do they exist, or are these fictionalized names for where you actually come from? They're fictionalized names of uh, the places I came from. Okay. Much, yeah. Because you're from Linville Cove, right? Uh, it's North Cove. North Cove. North Cove. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... If anyone's reading this, you can transport your mind to that part of Western North Carolina. Fictional names, but at least you know um, the topography and geography of how beautiful it is. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, the beauty of it, uh, just, yeah, it's ingrained in me and that uh, everything in the book kind of spins out of that environment. And not only that, but the people and culture. Uh, one thing I hope that people won't do is see this as a hillbilly book because uh, hillbilly is a derogatory term, pretty much. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like an, you know, it's not, uh, we don't like that. <laughs> but these people, in fact, uh, the majority of the people in there really were not what I would call hillbillies. They were, most of them were factory workers and farmers. In fact, my grandfather had a big farm, about 500 acres up there before he divided it up among his offspring. And that created some problems because then no one had a farm big enough to make a living on. So life started getting kind of hard after his death and the division of all of the farms up there. So, and there were always a bunch of, as there are everywhere, uh, people that are lost, uh, like in this poker game. The image you see when you read that story, I hope, is a bunch of guys that have, are lost sitting around a campfire out behind a store with a railroad track in the back, playing their poker and carrying on with each other. But uh, that's pretty much what I see when the, and when I wrote that story. Well, Patty mentions the universality of it because it's just people trying to figure out their lives and what lies beyond and all that sort of stuff, and that happens to everybody. Exactly, yeah. And even the tragic part of it, of it those things happen too. In fact, I've got, as Patty said, I've got elements of racism in there. And this is an interesting twist on racism. Uh, I hope that can, people can pick that up uh, in that story. Uh, and, of course, the uh, sexuality and uh, so forth. I hope that people won't uh, be offended by the, ep- the, by the language. <laughs> I, I use a lot of little four-letter four words and so forth, but I never in any of them drop the F-bomb. <laughs> but, uh, I hope that won't offend people. But, they read the, but they're, that's the way people talk. That's and I think that works more and more so as we go forward in that it gives uh, your characters the full range of expression. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely some strong female characters in here, which just, <laughs> just as the woman in the group, um, it, it does seem like the women kind of held down the farm in some regards while the men did the hard work. And, you know, they blew off their steam the way they knew best through the jug. Um, but the woman, you know, they made sure that the guys got home, got the kids were dressed, ready to go to school, went to church. Um, and I imagine, again, kind of universal, and certainly back in that time and place, um, you, you show the roles and the reversals and how things things were a little different back then. Yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the role of women has, of course, shifted back then most of the women up there were homemakers, but they were strong women. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tragic part of, of uh, the thing about my father was my mother having to deal with that. And that's another you know, tragic part that I had to write about and kind of get out of my system. But uh, in any case... 
They endured. That was one of the words that you used in one of your short stories about, uh, I think it was Sarah. You know what? The, they, the women endured. Yep, they endured. Yep. Mm. And, uh, and the men were all good looking. <laughs> uh, one other thing I wanted to mention uh, you turned 83 a couple days ago is that right uh, yes so happy birthday the night thank you so you're an octogenarian yep. uh, writing short stories about childhood at the point where you're almost as far away from it as you can get <laughs> exactly. I, think it, yeah. I think that's a pretty remarkable thing yeah. that, that yeah, you can yeah. do that Exactly. I, I hope that uh, the younger generation who knows nothing really about the generations that I'm writing about can look at this and get a picture, a snapshot of those three generations that the book takes up. It doesn't take up anything of the, the current recent generations, but it looks back at those times, and I hope, that, I hope that's what will come through. Well, that's pretty important for them to understand how— the world got to a place where they joined it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they join it with a lot more, uh, a lot of different things today, cell phones. In fact, we had no uh, no electricity until I was seven years old. Uh, used outhouse all that time, too. So I grew up from, uh, you know, that generation all the way up through cell phones and people going to the moon and so forth. And it, it's interesting to have watched that evolve. And I think back to the generation that the book starts with, and those were the people that used horseback. And, of course, there's a story called Christmas Candy in there that uh, goes back to uh, horse and buggy days and uh, old men uh, interacting with each other, <laughs> brothers, <laughs> Drinking. Yeah, drinking. <laughs> a lot of drinking, yeah. Well, and now there's the element of truth about that is that my great-grandfather owned a legal still, and we have property up there now on a still house branch, which is part of my great-grandfather's uh, my grandfather's farm. And uh, he had that legal house still until Prohibition, and it uh, the the drinking continued after that. <laughs> in fact, uh, liquor making continued after that. I'm sure in a lot of places. You know what's funny about their lives is nobody, when they grow up, think uh, thinks of themselves as having hardship, like we would think of them having. It's right. just the way you dealt with life. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, we grew everything. In fact, the farm that I grew up on was self sufficient. We made everything. We, we killed our own hogs. We uh, made our own molasses for sweetening. Uh, we grew everything we ate. Uh, and, you know, the only thing we, that they bought, I guess, was things like salt and, uh, uh, you know, the staples that they couldn't get anywhere else, pots and pans and so forth. But uh, I can remember my uncle standing, stirring the molasses and making those. And can remember vividly the hog killings and so forth. So those were ingrained in my memory, and uh, that's kind of what I pull from for writing. Do you still have res- relatives that live up in the North Cove area? I'm the last one of uh, my first cousins. Uh, all of my 
uh, generation before that are gone. Of course, my father's generation. And then all of my generation are gone except me. And I may have one other cousin who's still living uh, in a rest home up in Marion. I'm not sure about that. I need to find out if she's still living. But she would be in her upper 90s, I'm sure. Have, have you had anyone to complain about how you portrayed him or her in the story? Uh, not yet. <laughs> sounds sounds like sounds like they may be gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they really they really are. They're all gone. Uh, oh, all the guys in your well, now generation the, in that story. No, no. Now the ones of my generation, there's some yeah. of those. A bunch of them are still living, yeah. but I doubt they'd recognize themselves in these stories. There's an interesting thing that happened too. Uh, some of these stories involve like four kids, four boys interacting with each other, uh, like one called Honeycutt Gorillas. As far as I know, in the the authentic element of that, I was the only one that participated in that. But my mind saw me with a bunch of boys doing all this stuff. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing that my mind really turned itself on its head and put me with a bunch of my friends doing something that I did alone. <laughs> and uh, there's one called The Cage. And I don't know, I know that there were some other kids involved in that, but I don't know who they were. I can't remember. <laughs> Filling in the blanks creatively, I'm so envious of you. Good for you. Yeah. Um, do you have any more stories to come? Uh, well, I've written a few others, and I'm not sure uh, how much more I've got in me. <laughs> but I do have one that if I can ever get it uh, polished up, it's a, maybe a novella length, but uh, I'm not sure it's ready for uh, anyone else's eyes. <laughs> What's that? What's that process like for you? I mean, how how do you know when you, you know you got an idea and you're taking it forward? How do you know when you're going to fully commit to it to write this whole thing down? I think I'd have to have somebody else to read it and react to it before I would uh, devote myself to fully committing to it. Uh, now the short stories, I would just write those and maybe have my favorite editor whom I live with. <laughs> she's a, uh, she's my best and first editor. But uh, I'll have her look over short stories and poems and uh, then i maybe try to get them published. If I get one or two published, then that's certainly some motivation to continue. But this book uh, really took a lot, of, a lot out of me. You know, I think it's the icing on my cake <laughs> at 83 years old. You know, I'm, I'm proud to have at least published it. And uh, it's been a, been a joy to have worked with you guys and with the people that read it. I can't believe the, the uh, comments on the book, uh, especially Tim and Lee Smith and Ron Rash and... Uh, Tommy Hayes, they they were just more than generous with their comments. 
I noticed that Tom Rash helped you as well. Um, Tom. Tom. Yeah. Ron's brother. Ron's brother. Yeah, he read it. I, in fact, I had several editors to look over it, and uh, they're mentioned in the yeah. acknowledgments. Uh, and I think they they certainly uh, helped a lot in tightening it up and so forth. Uh, you know, it's kind of like verbal diarrhea when you first start out. <laughs> there's, there's a bunch of it, then you have to be willing to give up those words that you love and accept the judgment of some intelligent people like Tim <laughs> and uh, the other editors. But, is that how you do it? Is you just let it all come out and then cut what you got to cut? Yeah, that's exactly what you do. You write it and let the characters do what they want to. You make, make the story go where it's going to go. And then you... Uh, have to go back and pare it down and uh, clean it up and uh, tell the truth. I was not the greatest uh, uh, grammarian. <laughs> My grammar and uh, writing style was not that good until I started writing long 30 years ago and going to these writers' workshops. And I, I quickly learned that editing and good editing is essential to anybody's work. So if there's anybody out there that's listening to this that has any ambition of uh, writing a book, you need to be uh, to get it edited by some other readers. It's one of the number one things we do when we accept people's um, manuscripts. We ask them who's read it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and typically you can tell a writer who's got their craft down, they'll say, oh, I've had several people look at it and look it over. And, and I ha recently had a 22-year-old person who wrote 190,000 words, and I'm like, well, who's read, read it for you? Nobody. <laughs> it was so sweet. And I, I told him, you know, it's, you know, I admire your chutzpah for getting out 190,000 words. You have someone read that, you come back to me. Um, and, he, and he's doing the work. Good. He found himself an editor. Good. So some people listen. Um, I want to thank you, Wes, for what you you helped us, you kind of collaborated on another one of our projects, Cecil Willis. Yeah, uh, he's got a book coming out shortly, if it's not out already, and it's called Hillbilly Odyssey, and it's a memoir. Right. Uh, he was brought up in Canton, North Carolina. Right. Hillbilly Odyssey: Resilience in a Small Mountain Mill Town, and. Um, Cecil was very encouraged by you reading it on his behalf and providing an, an advanced praise or a blurb. Um, well, I appreciate his asking. He's, he's got a good book there. At, uh, the uh, What happened to, the Cant, to that town? Canton closed. The mill closed. And certainly he's got a strong history with that and a lot to say about it. And, and one of the reasons I bring it up is um, as most folks know, with, Mount, with Red Hawk Publications, we, we don't have the strongest marketing and distribution mind, but we do the best we can. And your short stories taking place in the mountains and his memoir taking place in the North Carolina mountains, I would love to see the two of you maybe dovetailing and doing a little bit of uh, reading together and discussion together because they're 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 two heads of the same coin in mm -hmm. a way yep. you bring the fiction and he brings the history and the memoir um, I could see the two of you doing something together so stay tuned listeners 
Um, that would be fun. There might be a good opportunity to have you both on stage doing something oh. together. Um, it's in my mind. Uh, okay. <laughs> Planted the seed. Planted the seed. Yeah, Planted the seeds. Well, thank you, Les. Thank you for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. And you've gotten great press for the, the book so far, and we hope um, more good things like that continue to happen. Well, I appreciate it, uh, and I appreciate everyone who's bought a copy of it. And if you haven't bought it, go to RedHawk.com. And Red, Red, <laughs> Red I'll pretend to Robert. RedHawkPublications.com. Red <laughs> And or pick you up a copy. You'll get it cheaper than if you buy it on Amazon. That's right. <laughs> but anyhow, any way you can get your hands on one, please do. <laughs> you know how to market as well. You can wear that hat <laughs> as well as the uh, potter hat and the writer and the photographer hat. <laughs> so. And we always encourage our listeners to, again, follow us on our Facebook, uh, Instagram. We're also on X and TikTok, and um, we've got our website. So by all means, like, subscribe, follow, and share. There you go. Now, just one more final thing. Now that you've been on Red Pub Pod, can you say that? Can I say that I've been on Red Pub Pod? Red, Red, Red Pub Pod. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh. I have been on RedPub.com. <laughs> okay, enough. let me back up. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. <laughs> I have been on Red Pub Pod. <laughs> and I thank you for allowing me to do this. <laughs> and we thank you for being here. That's fun. <laughs> I get that right, thanks, Liz. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. <laughs> Been on a podcast Red Pub Pod. from Red Hawk Publications. Red Pub.